They bombshell in the Russia investigation. President Trump's former campaign chair, Paul Manafort, and his deputy, Rick Gates, have now been indicted. You get the first indictments out, and Trump and everybody else are like, oh, this has nothing to do with the campaign, and then boom. George Papadopoulos. Papadopoulos. George Papadopoulos pled guilty on October 5th to lying to the FBI about his contacts with Russians. This is a double-barreled punch. And I think that if I were the president, I'd be very disturbed. And that we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg. It's very compelling evidence that points toward collusion. This is Freak Out and Carry On. I'm Ron Suskind. And I'm Heather Cox Richardson. Heather Mueller strikes. What a week. You know, you talk and you talk and you think and you posit, but then rubber hits road. Rule of law. Somehow everything is different as of Monday. Once you get to the prosecution, once you get to the expression of what law does, which is bring judgment and accountability, uh, bring foundations of what all democracies rest on to a moment of madness. Uh, it's happening, and we are all now inside of a new novel, a powerful, exhausting, and absolutely irresistible novel of the wheels of justice turning. So Monday morning, special counsel Bob Mueller indicts two associates of Trump, Paul Manafort, former Trump campaign chairman, Rich Gates, a longtime aide to Paul Manafort, and a campaign advisor. The charges include money laundering, failing to register as a foreign lobbyist around their work for a pro-Russian Ukrainian politician, a giant pile of evasions, money laundering, tax evasions. Uh, for, for Manafort, it could amount to 80 years in a penitentiary. Obviously, that's more than would ever be expressed in terms of a prison sentence, but, but daunting. This is big news. And Trump tweets out after this big news pops. No collusion. No collusion. It's before I even met this metaphor guy. And then, boom, literally like cold response. The second shoe drops. And we learn that Mueller has also been sitting on a guilty plea from George Papadopoulos, a former foreign policy advisor to Trump. Papadopoulos seems to be working with Mueller now. Once people get into the guts of the thing, they find out he was arrested in July. And at that point, based on all estimations, looking at the filing, the indictment, it seems as though he has been wired or a source going inside Trump Village to talk to other members of the team, his former colleagues, and gathering information that now is pertinent to this investigation. What we don't have is a smoking gun yet showing collusion with Russia. We have lots of intent uh, without a realization of that intent. But it is, it is now becoming clear, I think to many people, a kind of tick-tock of events during the election year and what was really going on behind the curtain. So Heather, how does this feel for you, uh, Madam Historian, across the table? Uh, what are you seeing here as to where we've been, what we've learned across 100, 200 years of American history and what you're learning now? It's an interesting time to be alive as a historian. And I will say that I knew this was coming on Monday, but I expected it to be somebody very low level, very low level. And that's what I kept saying to everybody. And when I picked up my phone in the morning and saw the first, for, well, when I first picked it up, nothing had happened. But when I saw the first two indictments, I was shocked at the level they were at. 
and then then of course I I saw the thing about Papadopoulos coming down and and I got very quiet and introspective all of a sudden and I actually sat down last night and I wrote a letter to my children because to see a Republican appointed special counsel uh, Robert Mueller marshal in quiet and all of his people so loyal to him that they followed the rule of law without leaking to the press, without tipping their hands in any way that they had flipped Papadopoulos as long ago as they did, to take their belief in our system and to say, you know, you guys can bloviate all you want, you can have the news media, you can do all those things, but by God, we are a nation of laws, and you people have apparently broken those laws, and we are going to hold you accountable. It was the moment when politics became law and the very central moment of what America is all about. And I, to me, it was a very, a very profoundly moving moment, and I made sure to mark it not just in a letter to, that I put away for my children to say, you lived through this. But one that I also said to my students, this is not a partisan moment. This is a moment when the American government is asserting itself as the the heart of our, the beating heart of our democracy. That's evocative. Heather's letter to her children. Hey, I'd like to bring on our guest this week, Michael Isakov, chief investigative correspondent for Yahoo News. He's written two bestsellers, Uncovering Clinton and Hubris about the Iraq war. He is a longtime standard cleanup hitter in Washington, D.C. He was at Newsweek for years. Uh, he and I used to compete against each other from time to time and also walk our dogs in a nearby park. He's now working with David Korn uh, to write a book investigating the Trump-Russia connection, which I just saw in the newspaper. It sounds like you just inked that contract. Congratulations. Uh, Michael, Welcome. Hey, uh, good to be there. And I got to say, that was a very good Alec Baldwin imitation you did. Uh, I was very impressed. Uh, well, uh, thank you. Thank you. Um, I, I'm a tall blonde man. He's darker. Uh, so that's... Uh, Congrats to you. Yes. <laughs> uh, well, thank you very much for that. Um, so, Michael, let me ask you the two big takeaways from Monday's news. You're right in the thick of it. Uh, what hits you as A and B? that is now roiling through that uh, nice noggin of yours? Well, look, there was a lot there. There was a lot of meat on the bone, and um, and we learned a lot. Let's start with Papadopoulos, because in some ways that's the more significant one, because it relates to what was going on in the campaign. The Russian government, through various cutouts, most likely connected to their intelligence services, were making a concerted effort to cultivate and ultimately penetrate the Trump campaign. Um, there were stories about uh, intercepts had been picked up by um, the NSA uh, showing some sort of communications going on, but we never had any details about that. Now, to be fair to the Trump folks, uh, it is not clear to what extent they followed up on Papadopoulos's offers to set up meetings. We know of no meeting that actually, beyond the Trump Tower meeting, that actually took place. But the emails as laid out in the, um, in the court papers in the statement of offense are suggestive. At one point, Sam Clovis, he was the campaign co-chairman, and we've identified him as the campaign supervisor of Papadopoulos, referenced in the court papers, says, great work 
uh, when uh, Papadopoulos tells him about his communications with uh, these Russians and the uh, efforts to set up a meeting in Moscow. Manafort at one point gets involved and says, well, we can't have DT, Donald Trump, taking such a meeting, but it might be okay to have some lower level person uh, do it so we don't send the wrong signal that's open to interpretation. But clearly, you know, as I said before, there's a whole line of communication there that we didn't know about before and we know now. Well, so let's just jump right into the representative of DT speaking Sarah Huckabee Sanders on Monday in response to this explosive news. Today's announcement has nothing to do with the president, has nothing to do with the president's campaign or campaign activity. Uh, the real collusion scandal, as we've said several times before, has everything to do with the Clinton campaign, Fusion GPS, and Russia. There's clear evidence of the Clinton campaign colluding with Russian intelligence to spread disinformation and smear the president to influence the election. We've been saying from day one there's been no evidence of Trump-Russia collusion, and nothing in the indictment today changes that at all. Uh, Michael, uh, your reaction when you heard Miss Huckabee <laughs> Sanders say Were you in the room? Did you go to this uh, press No, I don't. I don't. Oh, Okay, what, what, kind what, of what are you thinking as you're listening to that? Um, all right, so um, uh, look, I mean, you know, some of that's just silly. And to say it has nothing to do with the campaign, it has everything to do with the campaign. It was about communications that were being made to high level officials in the campaign about meetings with Russians. So, uh, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, clearly she missed the mark on you know, trying to respond to that. Um, now, uh, you know, we haven't even gotten to the first indictment, which was Manafort and Gates. Manafort was the campaign chairman, you know, who was indicted yesterday on money laundering and tax evasion charges, but also on being a foreign agent for a uh, Ukrainian political party that was aligned with Vladimir Putin and yeah. collecting millions of dollars to do that and directing a covert campaign to influence U.S. policy relating to um, Ukraine sanctions. Well, he was, was he was chairman of a Ukrainian campaign, not an American one. Uh, Heather? Can you lay out, Michael, for people who are not maybe following this as closely as the politicos around? why it's a bad thing for a campaign to be working with Russia. The Russians made a concerted effort to influence our election, and they spent money to do so. They took out ads covertly through fake uh, accounts in Facebook. But that was only one facet of a multidimensional, really unprecedented campaign by the Kremlin to interfere and meddle in our election, include hacking the Democratic National Committee, hacking the Podesta emails, weaponizing those that the, those emails for political effect by giving them to WikiLeaks and other websites, hacking into voter registration databases at the state level, and doing this, you know very sinister information warfare uh, campaign you, oh, on Twitter, on Facebook, on YouTube, all of which was designed to disrupt at a minimum our democratic process. And the U.S. intelligence community concluded that its purpose was to denigrate Hillary Clinton and promote yeah. Donald Trump. Yeah. The question that has been on the table for some time is, were the Trump folks, was anybody in the Trump camp a party to that? Yeah, it's the old Watergate question. What did you know and when did you know it? And that question is being directed at Donald Trump himself. You know, what's interesting about this moment, I think 
finally people are arriving, Michael and Heather, at a kind of coherence when they just line up events, some of which they may recall, some of which were quite striking during the campaign. And it's almost like now that you can see behind the curtain, see in three dimensions, it all starts to make sense. I mean, let's just run through a very, very short timeline that makes it all, I think, fairly clear. In March of 2016, John Podesta's email is hacked. Now, just a couple weeks later, in April, George Papadopoulos is told the Russians have dirt on Clinton. It's all very fresh. Then in June, it all goes month to month, June 3rd, the crown prince prosecutor of Russia emails Donald Trump Jr., says he can, quote, provide the Trump campaign with some official documents and information that would incriminate Hillary Clinton and her dealings with Russia, unquote. Four days later, June 7th, in a speech, Trump promises that he's going to give a speech where he'll be discussing all the things that have taken place with the Clintons. Then, then, just two days later on the 9th, Trump Jr., Kushner, Manafort meet with Russians at the Trump Tower. It's all condensed a few days later. They claim they did not get the incriminating information they were hoping for. Trump never gives that speech. But here, from mid-June to mid-August 2016, Papadopoulos tries to set up meetings one after another with Russians and Trump officials. He's quite ardent. Jump ahead. We're almost done. July 27th, Trump gives this extraordinary speech requesting that the Russians find the 30,000 emails that are missing. And if you do and release them, you will be rewarded. I love that, that construction, rewarded. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. I think you will probably be rewarded mightily by our press. Of course, the Russians don't get rewarded by the press. It was almost like he was signaling to them in public, which, as you know, Michael, from the intelligence reporting you've done and I've done, this is often a technique where an official who can't be seen anywhere near uh, the, the fire, much less the cause of the smoke, uh, signals in public. Uh, under coded language to make clear to someone else that he's in the know. Uh, this is something we've seen time and again. Someone, uh, an old CIA trick that we ran into, Michael, during weapons of mass destruction. Remember the foreign minister of Iraq wore a certain suit uh, addressing the United Nation to signal to Trump, <laughs> rather to signal to Bush and Cheney that he was in our bag. He was a, an informant. Here, you got Trump a, you is. Got a good memory there. Remember Sovereign? Yeah. Remember that? So here he's here. Here Trump seems to be signaling to the Russians that there's a deal, a quid pro quo. You get those emails out in time, and there will be rewards. Now, obviously, the rewards the Russians are looking for is the lifting of these painful sanctions and various other provisions that ultimately the Trump campaign provides after election. I mean, once you line this up edge to edge, you start to see, wait a second, there is a coherence to this. And finally, the last of this TikTok is on October 7th, hours after the Hollywood Access tape, which of course is disaster for Donald Trump, or seemingly so. WikiLeaks finally begins to release the explosive Podesta emails on cue, which begin the grievous damage to the Clinton campaign. I mean, it's almost like if you line up Trump, the Russians, and Julian Assange from WikiLeaks, they are really working in a coordinated 
integrated effort as though they're one campaign. Yeah. Look, uh, when you line it up that way, it sure looks pretty damning. So the question remains, you know, were there private signals that were being sent uh, and private messages that make it clear that the Trump people were complicit, knowledgeable about what the Russians were doing. And we don't have that smoking gun yet proving that. I say yet, and that's perhaps unfair in and of itself. We don't have that smoking gun proving that. We have a lot of really suspicious communications and events when lined up the way you just lined them up um, can look really damning. But in order to, if you were in a courtroom, you know, you'd still have to come up with the witness who can say, yes, I was there. I heard Donald Trump or Donald Trump Jr. or Steve Bannon or Jared Kushner say, we need to get in touch with the Russians about this, or we need to wait to hear from Moscow about this. You know, we don't have that. We don't have the John Dean. We have right now George Papadopoulos. And while it's fascinating reading, Papadopoulos is not a John Dean. John Dean. Let's let's place him. John Dean was special counsel to the president, President Richard Nixon. Young, very young. Uh, seemed like he was even younger in his early 30s. He looked like he was about 25. And he is the person who turns. He steps in front of the hot lights of the, of the Senate committee, and he lays out the letter and verse of what happened with Watergate, how Nixon covered it up, and he says famously, there is a cancer on the presidency. There's no doubt about the seriousness of the problem we've got. We have a cancer within close to the presidency that's growing. It's growing daily. It's compounding. It grows geometrically now because it compounds itself. Uh, that'll be clear as I explain, you know, some of the details. Why it is, and it basically is because one, we're being blackmailed. Two, uh, people are going to start perjuring themselves very quickly that have not had to perjure themselves to protect other people and the like. And that is just, and there's no assurance that that won't bust. Well, look, look, Michael, you cut your tooth there with the Monica Lewinsky scandal. Uh, and, and, of course, you and I both did the, uh, uh, the big lie about weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. And in a way, we're hearing the echoes now of Watergate. Uh, that, that really is the only antecedent, I think, in terms of, of the lay of the land that really matches uh, here. How do you do a compare and contrast of where this this current scandal stacks up? What are the missing pieces of this that that actually created outcomes, outcomes in terms of truth finding, truth telling and uh, and consequences for some of those other scandals of our lifetime? Well, first of all, I mean, every scandal is sui generis. <laughs> I mean, they're all unique in and of to themselves. Um, so it's a little uh, difficult to compare them. But I just to come back to the point I was making before, we need that John Dean, yeah. uh, you know, the insider who can step forward and say, I was there and now I want to tell you the truth. I want to tell you what was really going on. What we have right now are, you know, and we, we've always had them in every major yep, yep, yep. scandal before, and we just don't know if, if, if Mueller's going to get one here. Clearly, I think they would have loved to have flipped Manafort. 
And uh, well, and but they still might flip them. I, I mean, look, here's that's part of what you see. All the prosecutors have been saying this. You, you see a, a giant pile of potential crimes uh, and and jail time being piled up against Manafort, but not in the area of our intense interests, you know, tax fraud, things like that. And of course, that's what someone like Manafort then trades uh, for what he will say in public. Right. But uh, ideally... What but, about look, Flynn? Why isn't Flynn anywhere to be seen? I think he's laying low, uh, waiting to see uh, if he's going to be indicted. And I think most people expect he will be. One of the things that really shocks me and picks up on something Michael just said is how many people appear to be involved in something untoward with Russia. And I can't think of another scandal that seemed to include so many people, including, you know, people in, in Congress who appear to be looking the other way. Does this seem unusual to you guys? Is this what the weapons of mass destruction scandal looked like? Yeah. Look, I'll, the WMD was interesting because uh, everyone was involved in some ways in making a decision as to how they'd felt about the march to war. I mean, that was a huge campaign of the United States. You know, it was public relations. It was intelligence. It was a, a kind of unified force, a unified uh, front of message. Um, and, um, and, and the thing is, is that, is that it took a while uh, to get to anything that looked like a smoking gun. Even at the end, Bush and Cheney had a little area to duck into shadow and said, you know, we're as surprised as everybody else was. I mean, I was one of the people who reported otherwise and said, no, they weren't surprised at all. They knew ahead of time that the WMD was a, was a hollow case. And ultimately, they never uh, permitted the case to be made so the American people couldn't make a judgment as is this the, the proper justification for war. I mean, even dictators hesitate to do that, to send young men and women to their death in foreign soil without the reason for war being clear. But, you know, when we get to the in and out here, I think Watergate is the one that's echoing most strongly here for me, because what you have here is an instance where a White House is under direct siege from many other parts of the U.S. government and the public and the evidentiary rules that guide jurisprudence. What are we going to be able to hold back? What can we hide? What can we maybe even destroy? Those were issues for Nixon. But when we step back from Nixon, we say, hold on a minute. That was a panty ante burglary at the Watergate, you know, where they're trying to get to, you know, Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist, you know, records and other almost small, dirty tricks. Well, to discredit their opponents. It was no a, doubt well, about the it. The theme was the same. And it, was a, it was a, it was a, in the famous words of Ron Ziegler, it was a third-rate burglary with the Russians of the DNC, what the Russians pulled off in this one was a first-rate burglary of the DNC in which they got thousands of emails and internal memos and then used them for political effect. So in that sense, what happened last year with the Russians dwarfs in magnitude what the Watergate burglars were trying to do in the uh, in the Nixon scandal. I mean, let's just throw this out to you, Michael. Uh, what do you think the next? Give me a prediction. A month from now, if we had you on the show, where would we be sitting, especially in terms of your guesses as to Mueller's next steps, because yeah. he's the man driving the ship? Yeah, well, I, I, I would think that the Flynn indictment is coming. 
Um, and it's going to be very instructive to see how far that goes. And I think Flynn goes much closer to the president than Manafort and certainly Papadopoulos. Remember, Flynn is the guy that, that Trump was trying to protect when he said to Comey, you know, I hope you can let him go. Right. So if there was anybody, you know, the obstruction issue all revolves around uh, Michael Flynn. So I think that's, you know, how much Mueller has on Flynn and what charges he brings against him. This is the former national security advisor to the president of the United States. So he, he will be a much bigger deal. He's, he is of the, the fish out there right now. He's the biggest fish that we know about. And I think that that part of the investigation is the next shoe to drop. And that's the one that we really are going to need to scrutinize and talk about. Incisive prognostication from one of uh, Washington's uh, investigative cleanup hitters, Mike Lizikoff. Thank you for joining us. Anytime. Happy to do it. Heather, let's stand by. Take a quick break. Uh, We'll be right back. Okay, we're back. So, you know, what I think is interesting about this, Ron, is if you think about it, every president has a scandal, except perhaps Barack Obama, at least if there is one, we don't know about it, which is really itself unusual. But every president has had a scandal and all of them get out of it somehow, usually by throwing somebody under the bus. And, you know, this really makes me think, for example, of... I don't know, maybe Teapot Dome or something, but I suspect you're going to walk us through Watergate. Well, it's interesting because uh, John Dean, who's been on TV lately, said um, that um, the the suggestion, and it seems to be more than that, that uh, Papadopoulos was wired, that over the last few months since his July arrest till now, uh, for the most part, that he was um, uh, essentially doing the work of Bob Mueller meeting with people, talking to them on the phone, carrying a wire. And Dean says, well, they asked me to wear a wire, too, uh, during Watergate. And I, I said no to that. But then after a bit, we realized that I didn't need to wear one because Nixon was taping everything anyway, which I love. And that's really where it all came down for Nixon, because he couldn't throw people into the fire once his voice was on that tape. You know, that was that was the moment in which the evidence became absolutely irrefutable and tied directly to the voice of Richard Nixon saying, stonewall it, do anything you have to, which is is just an active verb for obstruction of justice. And that's ultimately what takes him. But before that, he certainly threw aides under the bus one one after after another. another. You betcha. Uh, And ultimately, it was Alexander Butterfield, the kind of middling aide to Richard Nixon, who answers the question, did Richard Nixon have tapes? And he says, oh, yes, he did. And everyone said, oh, my. And then the battle was over the tapes between Nixon and the Supreme Court. And once he lost that, he knew it was a matter of not if but when. The idea that there were tapes strikes me as being an interesting link to the present. And one of the things that Michael was saying that that, you know, we can't imagine Nixon having done this. But what we're really looking at, it seems to me, in some ways, is what technology has done to democracy. Yeah, that's smart. That is that... 
you know, Nixon certainly did this kind of disinformation stuff, but for sure. him it was hiring individuals to write letters to newspapers. And, you know, how many letters can you write to how many newspapers? And now we can weaponize knowledge and technology well, in such a way well, that we can do psyops I mean, on look, people. Like it was odd and fascinating that Nixon had a taping system. Uh, it was also the one that you heard Lyndon Johnson use. As I mean, say, it's not new to Nixon. No, no, the Johnson tapes. You can hear that on C-SPAN. And so I, I that think ta- it was Kennedy who put them in. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So that taping system, that was latest technology in the 1960s. Of course, now there's a taping system active right this second. Every time we do anything, we leave a data trail, which is essentially a tape of our activity. And so that creates now a whole web of potential disclosure that would make Richard Nixon's head spin. Well, that's a really interesting segue to the thing that has really been on my mind, because everybody looks at Watergate now, and what I can't get out of my head is the coming of the Civil War. In 1856, the guy who runs for president is James Buchanan, and he's a Democrat, and he is sort of outside of everything. He's he's not really part of the party system because he's been a minister to Britain. So he looks a little bit in a way like Trump. I don't want to push that too far. You know, history doesn't repeat itself. It rhymes. But but he's an outsider. And people think he's going to manage to to rein in what they call the slave power and keep things balanced and, and try and keep a government for real Americans. And he gives his inaugural address. And he says, you know, and I am paraphrasing, believe me, you people are all concerned about slavery, but, you know, we've tried to work it out through Congress and, and you know, that hasn't worked terribly well. And, and we've come up with all these different plans. But, you know, now we finally have a way to make this work. It's in front of the Supreme Court. And like all other good Americans, I will do whatever the Supreme Court hands down, whatever it says I'm with. And almost immediately, the Supreme Court hands down the Dred Scott decision. The Dred Scott decision was this enormously important political decision that essentially handed the U.S. government over to the slave owners. And when this happens, it's really clear to everybody that Buchanan and Roger Taney, who is the chief justice of the Supreme Court and whose statue just came down in Baltimore recently, that they've colluded, that they've gamed the system, that it really wasn't about the separation of powers and that the laws that people cared about. It was about keeping this small group of essentially oligarchs in power. And that's what it feels like to me here. The idea that people are looking at this and going, okay, maybe we didn't like Trump, but as long as he was playing fairly, we were willing to address the problems in the Rust Belt or whatever. But they're looking at this and going, you game the system. You know, if the Americans stand for one thing, it's fairness and equality before the law, and you game the system. You know, we are now in the thick of it, in the thick of the wheels of justice turning, and this narrative is now resting, as you point out at the beginning of the show, on rule of law, the foundation of what keeps us out of the jungle, keeps us from, well, killing each other. And it's ancient, and it now is having its day. Heather, thank you for that Dred Scott allegory. It is. it's 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 like a mirror to these times. Gotta love history, and it's always a pleasure to chat, Ron. Sounds great. I'm Ron Suskind. For Freak Out and Carry On, thanks for joining us. If you haven't already, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. It helps others find the show. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Freak Out Carry On. 
visit our website at wbur.org slash freakout. Our email address is freakoutandcarryon at wbur.org. Our show is produced by WBUR in Boston. We're produced and edited by Catherine Brewer. Our technical director is Matt Reed. Our executive producer is Iris Adler. Music for the podcast, courtesy of APM. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the participants and do not in any way reflect the views of WBUR management or its employees.